Hey there, Normal Cast listeners. Have you ever wondered how that bedraggled, sallow, hunched over dude you see crawling from his tent every morning manages to magically send 514 by day's end and look like a stud doing it? Well, first of all, he doesn't have a real job. But second, he uses artificial stimulants, aka caffeine. Now, I can't guarantee that drinking defiant bean coffee will turn you into a 514 climber or make you more attractive. But it will make you feel better about the fact that you're probably never going to climb 514. And thrusting a steamy cup of defiant bean in your tent mate's hand early in the morning will shroud you in a rosy glow. Oh, you're such a good friend. I wish my boyfriend did stuff like this for me, but he doesn't even like to climb. Hmm. So if you want to fill every day with limitless possibilities, at least in your mind, then head over to defiantbean.com and order some fresh roasted, responsibly sourced coffee beans from friend of the show and climber Jeff Hollenbaugh. When you enter Enormo at checkout, you get a discount and the Enormo cast gets a couple bucks too. So once again, that's defiantbean.com, entry normal at checkout. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in tent? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place. That's, out. that's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. We really, really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Hello and welcome to the Enormal Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. This is episode number 27. It is January 17th, I think, 5.30 Mountain Standard Time. Uh, I'm running a little bit late with this one. I do apologize. On today's show, a conversation with New Zealand climber Mayan Smith-Gobat and I chased Mayan down. She's actually spending a little bit of time in Colorado, and I had heard that, and so I got in touch with her. I don't know Mayan, or at least I didn't know her before the show, and I chased her down at my friend Rob Pism's house in Grand Junction, and hopefully Rob's going to be on the show coming up as well. We've talked about it a bunch of times and just never been able to connect, but I'm sure we'll get that taken care of here in the next couple months. I don't really have a lot on my mind this time around, actually. I've been doing a ton of work on the Norma cast behind the scenes. That's what kind of made me late with this episode. I assure you, I am not just being lazy. So before we get to the show, I'll just give you the real quick huge on how you guys can help out the show. I've been getting a fair few very generous donations in the last couple months, and that's been kind of humbling. I can't thank you guys enough for that. And if anybody else wants to pitch in, you can do that over at the website, enormacast.com. Just click on the donate button and it'll run you through the process. I promise you that the money that I get out of that goes right back into the Normacast in a whole bunch of different ways. And remember, I'm not looking for a down payment on a Sprinter van. Even just a couple bucks will help out. Other ways to help out include buying a t-shirt. You can click on the t-shirt banner on Normacast.com and that'll take you over to that shop. Or you can buy some coffee from Jeff at DefiantBean.com. Simpler things that don't cost any money are just simply telling your friends or liking us on Facebook or subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. After that, get creative. 
Name your cat a normal kitty and cover him with stickers. Maybe write a normal cast on your cheeks with a Sharpie next time you go bouldering and put the video up on YouTube. Whatever you're thinking, just get the word out there. We are on the cusp of something big. I can just feel it. All right, well, I'll let this interview do the talking for itself. Let's get right to it. A conversation in New Zealandese with Mayan smith Govat. Rock and ice. The, the photo camp you were in town for that, right? The photo camp? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That's where I live. I live That's up. how I ended up here, really. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, cool. So uh, we're sitting at uh, Rob Pism's house in Grand Junction, Colorado, and I'm sitting here with New Zealand climber Mayan Smith Gobat, which is actually one of the, like the most distinct names I've heard in climbing in a long time. Yeah, it would have to be. <laughs> Thanks a lot for uh, sitting down with me, Mayan. Um, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good, good. Yeah. You're getting through the cold here in Grand Junction? I'm not liking the cold. Yeah, it's it's unseasonably freezing here in Grand Junction, Colorado. And uh, I wanted to start by kind of asking you how, in God's name, climber from New Zealand ended up in Grand Junction, Colorado, the pearl of the Western Slope. Yeah, it's kind of random. That makes me laugh as well. Yeah, what happened? <laughs> Well, like you mentioned, the photo camp, mm-hmm. I ended up going to that, and that's the first time I'd been in this area at all, really. Right. The photo camp was something that Rock and Ice put on, and uh, where were you guys actually climbing for that? We're climbing I, up at Independence Pass. Right, Independence Pass in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So. And that was in end of June. Yeah. And met another climber from here, uh-huh. Ben Rook, right. um, ended up coming back over and going to the trade show and coming through here for a little while. Okay. And that was right before I was going down to, or when I was thinking about going back down to get on punks in the gym again. Okay, in Australia. In Australia, which I've come really close to several uh-huh. times. Wanted to make sure I was ready to get on at this mm-hmm. time. And had been thinking about putting some serious effort into training. And that's how I also met Rob Pism mm-hmm. and kind of got into experimenting with training. Right I've pretty on. much got to where, I've, where I am with climbing through just climbing outside and putting very little time into training, okay. really. That's awesome. And Good for you. <laughs> so that's kind of what brought me back here. A small crew of really keen psyched people and a place where I could hang out and just train for a while. Right on. Well, and not you're... be too sidetracked by really good climbing because I know that if there's something really good around, I'm going to be climbing, not training. <laughs> <laughs> that was a sideways compliment to Grand Junction right there, but... Yeah, if you hook your wagon to Rob Pism, you're you're bound to get stronger somehow. Yeah, and I was also I am really psyched to go and climb in the desert on the sandstone. And right on. Rob is a pers- perfect person to go and experiment with or see the desert. Really. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's been unseasonably cold yeah, and snowy, really and we haven't got horrible. out at all. <laughs> I pa- I, on behalf of Colorado, somehow I feel like I should apologize to you. And and for the the listeners, if any fans from New Zealand tune in. Uh, maybe it would it would be helpful to kind of uh, because Grand Junction is it's a, a city. I mean, it's like I don't know thirty thousand people, maybe maybe not Something, that many. I don't know, but it's it's decidedly redneck. Okay, and I mean, I don't think most people here would even be bothered that I said that to them. And I actually like Grand Junction because my I have some redneck tendencies, but it's like America, like Walmart, America. It's totally America. Yeah, so I can't even... I mean, if you sort of quiz the population here about where New Zealand was, 
if they if they had any idea, they'd wonder why this Australian girl was even asking him about it. Get a lot of Australia. I also get, oh my god, have you got an accent? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well. People around here try to affect a, a sort of Texas-style accent, too, which is really out of place in Colorado, but they do it anyway. Even the uh, the Flight of the Concords did a whole episode about being mistaken for Australians. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yep. so you probably have to spend a lot of your time explaining that. You get that everywhere, mm-hmm. not just in Grand Junction. Yeah. But um, I actually was uh, – we'll get to this later, but I spent a year in New Zealand, so we have this you know connection based on geography that we'll get into in a little bit. So, So you grew up – in New Zealand, born and bred, raised up, and uh, mostly on the South Island? Um, I was born on the South Island. Okay. I was also, I'm actually only half New Zealand, oh, right. half German. My mother's oh, German. Okay. And I did spend a lot of my life traveling to Germany and spending quite a bit oh, okay. of time in Germany. So, yes, I grew up in New Zealand, but I'm not true born and bred purely New Zealand. Okay. Did you, do you speak German too then? I do speak German. All right. Can you tell me about sort of what kind of kid you were? I was a pretty independent kid, but also really quiet, kept to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, always had a really big connection to the outdoors, uh-huh. nature. I was born at Mount Cook, which is the highest mountain in New Zealand. And my dad was actually a mountain guide okay. and basically spent a lot of time in the outdoors. Like, uh-huh. I lived in a tent a lot of my life. Really? Nice, I guess. Probably not so nice if you're a middle, middle school age kid or something like that. By middle school, I wasn't in a tent anymore, <laughs> okay, <cool>. luckily. <laughs> I have good memories of tents. <laughs> well, when I was reading about that, because I read, I read your profile on the 510 uh, site, uh, maybe it said there that you'd grown up in Mount Cook Village or around Mount Cook. It struck me because as a touchstone for, for people in the United States or climbers in the States, it's kind of like... Growing up in like Yosemite Village or some place that's it's hardly really reminds you of a town when you're there as a tourist or as a it's climber. not a town at all. Right. It's it's in a national park. Right. I don't even know how many people live there. Uh-huh. Not many at all. Right. Were you there when you were eleven? No. Oh no. Because see, I might have seen you on the street. Is why I'm asking. Because I was there in 1991. No, I was there till totally I was five. Cool. I was there till I was five, okay. and then actually, my parents moved to the North Island. Okay. And we lived under Ruapehu there oh, okay. for a couple of years. And then I moved down to Hawke's Bay, of all places. Where's um, that? East coast of the North Island. Oh, okay. Kind of hick town. No mountains. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Like when, when are you sort of thinking about the mountains in terms of recreation, whether it's skiing or climbing or any of those things? Was that right away? The mountains have always been a part of my life. Uh-huh. Like the mountains are what make me feel at home, really. But throughout school from like seven through to 16, I was really into horse riding. Okay. And that was mainly what I did. Okay. Um, put every spare moment of time into it and, yeah, competed a lot and everything. And then at about 15, 16, mm-hmm. it was when I kind of got back into doing anything in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a summer job back down at Mount Cook. Okay. And got into alpine climbing at that point. Right, and can you like let's talk a little bit about what what that means to be a, a sort of alpine climber in, in Mount Cook or in New Zealand? You know, when I was there, I went because I wanted to. I had aspirations to be sort of a great mountaineer. I went there on an exchange in 1991 and went to school at Lincoln University in Christchurch, 
you know, speaking of sort of farm animals and hicks, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, it's an ag school, generally speaking. But so I was there to climb on these big mountains that had this like feeling of of being Himalayan. Oh, by the way, we're going to have a uh, guest guest <laughs> uh, on the show every once in a while. That's Rowan Pism, who's uh, supposed to be in bed actually, but. Anyway, but yeah, so moving back to that, we, we, you know, it's like this place where you can kind of cut your teeth on these really big features on relatively low altitude mountains. So yeah, I mean, what were some of your early climbing experiences like in the, on that stuff? I don't even really, really remember the first climbing experiences as such. Mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But the New Zealand mountains are, they're pretty extreme. The weather changes really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they're low altitude right but that doesn't mean they're low elevation gain right um you start from pretty low yeah i mean they're, they're fam- i mean uh, new zealand's it's sort of elongated island so at, at any point you're no more than you know what 80k from the ocean at it i mean how wide is the south island i can't even remember a couple hundred at the most a couple hundred yeah so the the, mountain, the wide spots <laughs> yeah the what mountains rise right up out of the ocean essentially and that's why the weather's so bad is it sort of comes cruising across the ocean and hits this massive. And, uh, you know, I, I, we had terrible weather, in, including like, you know, one of the closest, I say probably the closest times I ever came to, to uh, dying in, a, in an ice cave was on that mountain, Mount on, on Mount Cook. So as the early beginnings of my climbing career, it was, it was more than I could handle almost. So Yeah, my dad was a mountain guide, like mm-hmm. I said, and he's got countless stories of sure. being stuck up sure. in... Ice caves or crevasses near the summit of Mount Cook. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the same one. (laughs) Probably. Well, and and it's such this, I mean, New Zealand in terms of mountaineering has this kind of singular quality to it in that, I mean, these guys, your dad, I would assume as well, are just these like to the core hard men when it comes to climbing on those peaks. And I remember as a, as a kid, I mean, I was 20, so I'll just call myself a kid compared to what I am now. And I had the attitude of a kid. You know, I was in such awe of these guys as, you know, we'd hike out, get to the first hut and, and across the glacier or we're getting on an airplane. I was going to say, in those days, it would have been before they were flying in much? Uh, no, we, we, took, yeah. uh, we took a plane in the second time. Okay. We walked in the first time. And that alone actually elevated our status among some of these guys. And yeah. pretty soon they were like, okay, these are these guys that are like walking <laughs> everywhere <laughs> and showing up. And the other thing we did is, Went up to the, uh, I think the plateau hut on Mount Cook and with enough stuff that we stayed there for weeks waiting for the weather. And so these guides would come and go with their clients or whatever. And it would be just like, oh, look, there's those two American guys are still still here. They're still (laughs) here. And then we got hammered and we spent the night and we didn't summit. And uh, did did you ever know a a guy named, God, I wish I knew his last name, uh, Gottlieb? He was an old German guide. I don't personally know Gottlieb, but I know of him. Right, right. So he was there at the, at the hut and we, we went out to climb some, one of the smaller mountains in that cirque on a marginal day, went out and stomped around in the dark white out for like two hours and then came back. And he just like from his little, from his bunk was just like, yes, I thought that the weather was not very good. And then like rolled over as we're like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> taking our stuff off but oh, nice. and i do have to tell the story i know this is an interview with you but this is my show so is when we came down after having spent the night up there and in total whiteout conditions we managed to get ourselves down and when he saw us coming out because all this we were in this total whiteout and then within minutes it ripped out and it was a bluebird day and we were like 
standing dazedly confused in the middle of the glacier. So he comes cruising out and gives us uh, gives us tea and and some chocolate and and is all just like real encouraging. And we get back and these other two guys had gotten airlift off airlifted off the mountain by a helicopter and we're standing there watching the helicopter take everybody away and he doesn't even look at us. He just goes, "It is best when you rescue yourself." And then he just walked into the hut. And my buddy and I are like high-fiving, like, yes, he thinks we're cool. <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> the other line he gave me was that, and I use a lot, is that because he had gotten caught in a little slough avalanche in the Linda Glacier on there. He said, you know, the mountains do not know that you're an expert. They don't give a shit. Because <laughs> he had been up there so many times, and he's like, yes, they do not know that you're an expert. So, no, I've had... Definitely some of the most experienced or one of the most experienced people I knew was taken out by an avalanche. Right, yeah. The mountains didn't care. No, no. So so you're, you're sort of coming from this, uh, I guess, this kind of, I mean, uh, did that affect you at all, this sort of legacy of like, we're going to go up on these gnarly mountains and do gnarly things? Or, you know, how, how were you sort of thinking about it or approaching it? I guess I probably had that kind of approach to it. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely had the approach that... I don't want to be treated any differently because okay. I'm um, a young teenage girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was out there doing as much as anyone else, right. and making sure I was right at the front, leading whenever I could. Okay, um, I think if it's it's kind of a national identity, to be honest with you. I mean, as someone outside looking in and having spent time there, it's a very independent place. You guys, you know, as a as a national sort of national identity, it, it it has this quality of. Sort the of, underspoken hard man. Yeah, you know, uh, and woman for that yeah. matter. And just, you know, we're, you're going to put up with stuff. Maybe it's a legacy from the sort of stiff upper lip of the British. Who knows? But it's got that feel of, you know, we can handle this. And this is, this is our I think our it's lives, more you know? of, of people who have cut a living out of a pretty mm-hmm. harsh place to start with. And, Absolutely. Yeah. have learned to be tough. Yeah, it's admirable for sure. And that mixed in with the... Maoris, the native mm-hmm. New Zealand people, mm-hmm. also pretty tough. Right. Bunch of war-loving folk. Right. <laughs> so we talked a little bit before the show. There was a point you said that you started skiing or you transitioned into that. or you? Well, I've been skiing all my life. Mm-hmm. I was on skis before I could really walk. But like I said before, my major sport throughout school was horse riding. Um, and then when I went, when I got a summer job, I think at about age 15, down at Mount Cook, that's when I got into climbing mm-hmm. to start with, and at first mountaineering. Okay. And for a year, I really pursued that still while I was at school one in the North Island, stealing my mum's car and just trying to get into the mountains as much as I could. I went back down the next summer with the intention to keep climbing mountains. Uh-huh. Got some nice giggling going on yeah, in the background fine. there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really bad summer. Uh-huh. Like, basically, the weather was terrible. I got taken out rock climbing, and that's when I discovered that, really. Okay. And I got pretty hooked on it and pursued that throughout my last year of high school. So I went to school up in the North Island. Mm-hmm. As soon as I left school, I moved back to the South Island, wanted to be around the mountains. Um, and that's when I got into skiing big time. Okay. And at that point, I basically dropped climbing and pursued skiing for a few years just following winters around the world and mm-hmm. working whenever I could. Well, let's go back for just a second. So what kind of, where were you climbing when you first started climbing on rock? I moved I, down I'm, to, I'm curious about this because uh, I think a lot of these places uh, weren't even on the radar or developed or anything um, when I was there. So. so funnily enough, I had a little 
my dad had given me a, a little motorbike, a little one two five. I got on that and drove to the South Island. Okay. I went down to Queenstown mm-hmm. and went I think I ended up at the Jardines at one of the boulder comps there. Um they have a national bouldering series in New Zealand, which okay. is four events at out outdoor bouldering areas. Oh, okay. So I ended up there and then I I think I was just fruit picking or something mm-hmm. over the summer and then I ended up living in Wanaka. Okay. And so I was climbing around Lake Wanaka there. Right, yeah. Some of that stuff was developed, I remember, because we we sort of dabbled on it when we went to climb. Around aspiring. hospital flats there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you started skiing and not really to to get a, a chronology of that, but uh, you mentioned something about a accident. Yeah, so I followed winters around the world. Mm-hmm. I was skiing to a pretty high level, um, competing in extreme skiing competitions. Okay. Basically just being stupid, crazy, and mm-hmm. loving it. Sure. Um, and you're what, like late teens or early 20s at this point? Basically. Yeah, okay. Yep. Early 20s, so must have just been 20, and I flew off a cat track, like off a skiing trail. Sure. Um, just a silly mistake, basically. Uh-huh. Following someone down a mountain, didn't know where I was going. Right. They made a wrong turn. I was following. I thought I could cut back onto another track. End result was that I ended up flying straight off the track. Right. I hit a tree in mid-air. I broke both feet and my jaw, mm. which I could have gone back to skiing in the end, mm-hmm. but it basically put me out for six months. Being young and impatient, mm-hmm. I wasn't willing to just sit there and do nothing. Right. And that's what got me back into climbing. So I started going to the gym and climbing with no feet or just doing pull-ups or uh-huh. training my upper body, really, just right. to keep myself sane. And discovered that I really loved climbing. I was just thinking when you're talking about extreme skiing, some of the stuff that some of these ski mountaineers in New Zealand were doing way back in the day was beyond comprehension. So you, you've got this legacy almost in that as well. You know, I, I ran into guys that were skiing stuff in, in, you know, Mount Cook Park that were, was just insane. And this was back in like, they were doing it in the 80s or the early 90s when I was yeah, there. Yeah. So. So you've got that legacy there too now. Yeah, oh. and it's also the way I just have taken anything mm-hmm. I've done. Like I'll go hard at it, mm-hmm. give well, it everything. The extreme skiing thing, you know, when you said that you, you broke your feet, you're out for six months, and it's always struck me that that in some of these in snowboarding and some in terms of like the extreme, it's always struck me that there's kind of this expendability to some of the athletes, and like it, you don't last forever in that sport, no matter how good you are, it's it's kind of a tough sport to make it through to the other side, no matter who you are. You know? Be super tough. Yeah. 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 So, so, all right. So you're, you're training to be a rock climber all of a sudden again in your early 20s. Yeah. So I was training to be a rock climber without thinking about training to be a sure. climber. I mm-hmm. was doing it because it was fun, because right. it was keeping me occupied, um, keeping me sane, mm-hmm. still with the full intention to go back to skiing. Right. Um, and then when the summer rolled around, the bouldering series that I mentioned before, these four events came up again. By that point, I was able to boulder. Mm-hmm. Um, and some friends convinced me to join. Like, okay, I didn't think I was. I didn't think I should be joining at all. Right, because <laughs> I was just climbing for the hell of it and mm-hmm. having fun. I did though, um, and managed to win the series. And that's kind of what made me go, oh. Maybe I could be okay at this. And 
spurred me to put more effort into it and really keep pursuing it. In, In terms of like the climbing scene in New Zealand in these in these little bouldering comps. You know, how how big is this sort of climbing scene that you're you're joining when you're in these comps? Is it kind of the same people at all four comps sort of hanging out or you know, or is there are there international comp competitors coming or there may have been the the odd travelers who were right. international, but no, there's not really international competitors. Mm-hmm. And the fields would have been between 50 to 70 or 80 people, maybe 90 joining mm-hmm. okay. in total. So not tiny, right. but you'd get all the locals from that area uh-huh. and then a few people who would travel around. How do you fall into sort of, uh, you know, if you've joined this, this bouldering comp, you've done well, you know, how do you fall into sort of a group of people that you, you start climbing with in terms of becoming a rock climber, climbing on a rope and, you know, starting to even develop areas? At that point when I joined all these boulder comps, mm-hmm. I didn't know any of the people. Sure. It was all new to me. Okay. And it seemed big. Now it mm-hmm. feels tiny right. if I look at the back at them. Um, and that's, I guess, through that series is when I met the core crew of the people who climb the hardest in New Zealand mm-hmm. who mainly live around Christchurch. Okay. Like that's where the most hard climbing is mm-hmm. or the centre where the most hard climbing is. There's right. some amazing climbing down in the far south but mm-hmm. there's no centre that you can live in. So right. the biggest concentration of climbers is definitely in Christchurch. Okay. And that's when I met all of those and it was actually shortly after that that I ended up moving up to Christchurch because of climbing and okay. because of that crew of people. Did I see an article uh, about the Darren Mountains? Yeah, that's where I was mentioning down in the south. Okay. That's probably where I'd say the best climbing is in uh-huh. New Zealand, aside right. from the bouldering up at Castle Hill. Okay. But for roped climbing, it's amazing granite. There's some really good sport climbing. Mm-hmm. There is some bouldering and there's alpine sort of adventure routes. Well, that's why I wanted to ask you about it, actually, because it, it, back when I was there, that was sort of this storied mountain climbing area that had supposedly these really long rock routes in it had absolutely horrendous weather and, you know, horrendous jungle approaches, you know, temperate rainforest, not really it's jungle. It's rainforest. Yeah. It's total I mean, rainforest. It, yeah, temperate rainforest, you know, bushwhacky approaches and all those sorts it's of things. It's near so, vertical rainforest. Yeah. So when <laughs> I saw this article about these rock climbs in these pictures and I was like, there's no way that stuff was there when I was there. Were you involved in developing any of that, or was there a local scene down there? There's not really any town down there. Right. That's where I was mentioning. Mm -hmm. Like, it's amazing climbing, but like you say, the weather sucks. Totally sucks. The rainfall, like annual rainfall, is six meters a year. Um, (laughs) Six meters. I don't know what that that's, is in that's feet. Three point three <laughs> feet per meter, folks. So do the math in your head. That's uh, yeah, that's floating your house away, kind of rain. And admittedly, the amount of days that it rains mm-hmm. is not huge. It's just when it does rain, it just like it buckets. Right, right. And there's no catchments up high, so everything turns into waterfalls. Like mm-hmm. it's granite mountains. Mm-hmm. It's a fjord, or the whole area are mm-hmm. fjords. So mm-hmm. those, these two to three thousand meter peaks which drop straight into the ocean and like you say they're all forested and so you end up with these crazy vertical rainforests right um and you guys managed to eke out these overhanging roots on them there's some incredibly beautiful 
like steep little areas of rock that we've found. There's a huge amount of them there. Mm-hmm. The potential down there is massive, but right. the approaches are terrible, and the weather's terrible, and there's not really any main centre near there. So uh-huh. it's a really hard place to go and climb. And yes, I have done some of the development there right. of both the sport climbing and the longer mm-hmm. like multi-pitch routes where we've in general flown to with a helicopter because it's just too hard to hike. Good Lord. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were talking about this scene in Christchurch, I mean, are, do, did you, as as someone who's getting into it and then you end up in Christchurch, are there people that you can, you know, call mentors or, you know, how is it that you're sort of coming up to the sport? Just met people who became friends very quickly, right. um, ended up moving into a, a climber's flat, which mm-hmm. was basically just a house that had been rented and crashed on the floor there for a while, ended up living there. I was government sponsored for a while. Excellent. On the dole, climbing Inf- as much as infamous, I could. Infamous yep. for that part of the world. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so in this period, were you traveling out of I New was, Zealand? I'd done a bit of traveling, mainly to Australia, mm-hmm. Mount Arapiles. Right. That was my first climbing trips were there for sure. Other than that, no, not really. Okay. I was actually, for a couple of years, I was based pretty much in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. It did do a couple trips to Arapiles. Bouldering mainly bouldering mm-hmm. and climbing at the cave a small overhung basically like an outdoors gym right um a crag which is right basically in christchurch okay um so i was getting stronger on steep stuff through that bouldering a lot and then doing trips down to the darrens so i have a question uh in terms of having been there as well castle hill is that like who owns that okay depending which area you're talking right. about quantum field which is the oldest area, mm-hmm. that's a reserve or national okay. park. All right. The rest of it is actually on farmland, and there's a relatively delicate um, arrangement that you have to apply for a pass to go out okay. for the day, okay. like just an part. online application, which is really easy to do, mm-hmm. but you do have to do it. Well, I asked because of the, then we'd go up there, and it, it really felt like you just you were just hanging out because there's like a farm right below yeah there's a farm right below right and that main area you walk through farmland to get there but the actual area itself is Uh, okay is owned i think it's actually owned by naitahu one of the maori organizations it's a sacred one of their sacred areas okay all right that particular area curious because it always you know it always felt like maybe someone was going to show up with a shot now you'll be interested in this now there's actually a big car park and there's information signs and they've actually paved a trail out to that area okay great so it doesn't feel quite so much like you (laughs) might get shot walking across the paddock but (laughs) yeah well that's the way it felt back then but um, and it's not america you're not allowed guns down there all right (laughs) No, some of those guys have shotguns. They hunt birds, don't they? I'm sure the farmers do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, right. they hunt rabbits. Yeah, you got to be careful no matter where you are. But uh, yeah, I was just—I have a really vivid image of that place in my mind because it's—it's really otherworldly. It's—it's—it's it's, it's an amazing. They're not really boulders. They're like outcrops sticking out of the earth. But the—the the land. I mean, it's like this, like short, almost like shorn grass. Like yeah, perfect. it's rolling. Grassy yeah. hills. It's in a yeah. basin, surrounded by mountains. Really beautiful place. Yeah, and ideal. And then there's these this crazy outcrop of like bulbous limestone boulders slash cliffs, mm-hmm. sticking out of the ground. Really round, 
really cool formations. Yeah, and like if I remember right, because this was this would have been pre-bouldering pad, as as an age that I come from. But the, I remember the landings being like just in terms of no pad, like the greatest thing ever. Yeah, I mean maybe font is a little nicer because it's soft sand, but it was like soft spongy grass. If I remember, I don't right. remember it being so soft or spongy, but well, it's definitely grassy. It was, like, <laughs> you know, it was pre-global uh, warming. It was much wetter. <laughs> well, listen, let me tell you this: as a, as a person who had bouldered here in Colorado without a pad, you can imagine that I felt as though it was spongy. All right, no, it is. Aside from front, it's much, the best spot, and right. they are generally pretty yeah. flat. It's much spongier than jagged stones. Definitely. All right. <laughs> All right. Moving no, they're on. nice and grassy. <laughs> Okay, so that that's like your incubator, your climbing there. At what point did you, you know, start to think about New Zealand as being a little sort of small and limited? Because I, let me sort of say this: in my impression of it, is, is it's there's these huge mountains everywhere, all over the whole backbone of that island, and yet it seemed like, you know, rock climbable rock is few and far between. And one of those sort of ironies of having these these uplifted mountains that basically kind of our uplifted rubble in a lot of places so yeah especially around like mount cook region right it's wheat bigs yeah like it really is and there isn't a lot of amazing rock in new zealand mm-hmm. like there's some spots which are beautiful but they've got like castle hill and the darrens but they've also got their big drawbacks right and aside from that there's a bunch of little crags which are Nice, but they're small. And for our, our non-Australian or New Zealand listeners, Wheat Bix is a, a crunchy, oh, like, beer, cereal bar kind of thing that mushes itself up in milk, like, instantly. <laughs> Why we refer to rock as Wheat Bix is because it's, it's, it's compacted yeah, right. together, so it's lots and lots of fine layers, okay. which break apart really easily. Yeah, we don't have Wheat Bix, but... All right, so back to the question at hand. So you're in New Zealand. It's starting to feel kind of small in terms of, of potential for, for climbing. So what what uh, what point in your life is this? We're in like mid-20s or? I basically spent a couple of years in Christchurch. And at that, that point, okay. I started getting more into rope climbing mm-hmm. and started seeing the limitations sure. around there. Like there really isn't that much. And especially once you start breaking into the slightly higher grades, you get really, really limited as to what you can try. Mm-hmm. And so if something doesn't suit you with a certain grade, there's not many to choose from. Sure. You'll right. either end up coming against like a brick wall uh-huh. or just trying something forever until you can eventually climb it. I realized that pretty quickly and I realized that I was going to progress a lot quicker not being in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And at that point I moved to the Blue Mountains, Australia. Okay, awesome. Um, and I spent about a year living there, probably about 2004. Okay. That was the start of my breakaway from New Zealand. It's funny because when you talked about uh, the Darrens and sort of these horrible approaches, because um, I've spent a bunch of time in the Blue Mountains as well. And when I was there, and this was the mid-90s or so, you know, I'd point to a cliff that was clearly visible, like what appeared to be super close by. And I'd say, yeah, there are roots on that. And they'd be like, no, no, that's too far away. And then I'd point to another one. They'd be like, no, 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 that's too far. We No one's developed that yet. And it's just, they're right there. They're like everywhere. Like cliffs are everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, it it, it must have been just like, oh, yeah, this is going to work for a while. Like looking at the amount of climbing in this one super small locale. The point is down there, the weather is so terrible that you don't really want to spend that much time down there. Right. And 
Yeah, even though there's rocks everywhere. Right. And, the, and, and the a daring. huge amount of potential and the rock is really good. Mm-hmm. The weather's terrible. Right. And it's really difficult to live down there. Sure. So I got really frustrated with it. Sick of the isolation. It's a beautiful place. It was really nice. It's kind of really nice being down away from society, away from everything and just focusing on climbing. But mm-hmm. that when you're stuck in a tent or a hut for three days while it's raining, mm-hmm. it gets old pretty quick. Yeah, but your skin stays amazing, probably. I don't like Not- my skin being wet all the time. <laughs> I'm trying to look for I'll a good I'll take dry over wet all the, any day. <laughs> well, you probably did because it's hot as bejesus half the time in the Blue Mountains. So there you go. <laughs> all right. So you're in the Blue Mountains climbing on Australia. I guess I have a question too about like what point do you start to see this as sort of this potential, you know, if not a total income, this sort of lifestyle where you sort of start pursuing maybe be, being a, a known climber as it were. Is that something that you made a conscious decision about or was it something that started to happen? I mean, here you are in the States driving around a 510 van. So, you know, how did we get from there to here? Slowly. Yeah. And no, I mean, of course, being a professional climber, having it actually fund my life Mm -hmm. um, is something that I always dreamed about. Sure. Not something I really thought was going to happen, at least not for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also, in saying that, like with that, even that first bouldering series when mm-hmm. I started to when I fit, like won that without being known at all in New Zealand, on a New Zealand scale, I was bumped into that sort of people going, "Oh, hello, who's this?" Sure, um, getting sponsorship mm-hmm. pretty quickly, mm-hmm. getting known inside New Zealand very quickly, mm-hmm. especially because there's there really were still are not very many strong female climbers in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Like basically, I travelled around New Zealand and did either first female ascents or first ascents mm-hmm. altogether mm-hmm. pretty quickly of all the more well-known routes. Mm-hmm. Like I just managed to just go around and get all the first female ascents just sure. because there weren't anyone else doing, or there were no strong female climbers at the time, still aren't very many. Well, can you say anything about that? I mean, in terms of, is it a cultural thing? Is it is it just coincidence? What do you, I mean, have you ever put any thought into why it is that that you felt like maybe you were the only one? I wasn't the only one. Well, not the only I one. I wasn't but, the only one. Right. Like there definitely are a few mm-hmm. females around. Most of the ones that I started climbing with have dropped out of the scene now. Mm-hmm. I'm really not sure why. Because okay. if anything, it's a size thing. Just because the community is small, sure. so there's. I mean, there's always less female sure, climbers in general. Right. So if there's a smaller group of climbers, there's even less females out there climbing. Sure. So um, it's a percentage thing. Like it's the same percentage, but it it's it maybe becomes even more apparent that that yeah, there's only this many because look, they're all here in this room, kind of a thing. I mean, when there's that few, it's definitely that kind of thing. Right. I mean, in, in going back, like it still is. It, it's not the greatest place to become a rock climber. By any means. I was going to say, that yeah, that's what know. just occurred to me, yeah. is it's not the greatest place to be a rock climber. Australia is easy to get to. Yeah. But aside from that, it's a long way to get anywhere right, else. Right, right, right. And even if you want to like pursue comp climbing, mm-hmm. to actually be a comp climber right. and compete on anything other than a New Zealand scale is near impossible because the plane tickets are so expensive sure. to get anywhere. Well, I mean, it's like I think a lot of the characteristics that make it such a great place overall, you know, is 
you know, the weather is amazing and it's, it, it's dropped so much rainfall. You've got, you know, the flora and the fauna and it, it's just incredible, but it just stacks up against rock climbing, I think. That's the there, weather, you know. So the weather all over New Zealand isn't that bad. No, <laughs> no. The east coast is dry. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I just like. I just always remember being there, like, wow, there's, there's, there's. Where are all the rocks? And where are all the rock climbers? Because there was, there was definitely like this feeling of even if you were into rock climbing, it was like, okay, so you just led that whatever. You just climbed that five ten. All right. I don't care. What have you done in the mountains? You know, there, it was like this old school feel of you're just preparing yourself to do the bigger stuff. And rock climbing itself was kind of this, this side effect of wanting to climb in the mountains. You know I what think I mean? it's changed and a lot since absolutely, that time. Because bouldering wasn't such a thing even, I mean, across the world. Because that's how that started too. You know, the, 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 yeah. the guys in training. font training to do yep. bigger mountains. and. Yep. So that was kind of the feeling I always had when I was there. Like, where there's somebody here, I, I just have to find them. And I no, never did. But I was only little, there for a year. So. As a little pointer, um, it has changed a lot. Yeah. And now the New Zealand Climbing Magazine, mm-hmm. which is run through the Alpine Club, okay. always used to be mainly about mountain ascents. Mm-hmm. These days, most of the news in there is about rock climbing. All right, cool. So yeah. rock climbing has become... I wouldn't say bigger than mountaineering. I mean, mountaineering is always going to be big there because mm-hmm. the mountains are amazing. Yeah. But it's definitely become more on the front and it's pretty acknowledged there. And Can- there are actually, especially around Christchurch, there's a decent group of climbers. Cool. Can you still climb at Fanganui Bay? You can. Yay. I th- yep. th- th- it was like threatening to be closed when I was there. There's always something going on right. with it okay. being threatened and... Again, it's native Maori land, sure, sure. and they like to protect it. But you can still climb there, and it's probably the best spot in the North Island. Right on. Uh, well, let's skip forward to uh, uh, when you first came to the States and, and first actually went to Yosemite. Because one of the things that put you on my radar here in the States, and a lot of people, I think, was uh, this amazing video. Who filmed that video of you on the South It was Bay? Andy Baden. Okay. Yeah, this you know, it's like a few minute clip of you climbing on the South A headwall, and that was the thing. Like I saw, just sprayed all over the internet, and I was like, "Oh, who's who's this woman from New Zealand?" You know, it made me think back to my time there and all that sort of thing. So, can you tell me about coming over here and and getting hooked into that? Precursor for that was going over to Europe and discovering climbing there. Okay, what, what places were you hitting over in Europe? I've got family in Germany, so I'd okay. always go there, mm-hmm. and then mainly through France and Spain. And yeah, I've spent a lot of time over there and I've really, I really started pushing the sport climbing side of things over okay. there. Well, I guess I, I've always looked up to people who are well-rounded and can do everything. Mm-hmm. Bouldering, sport climbing, trad. I've placed trad since the day I started climbing really, but I've never climbed tracks. Okay. Because the trad done in New Zealand is you place in a tr- crack but mm-hmm. you'll climb the edges around the crack oh certainly like there's yeah. broken little seams they're not true cracks well even a Rapleys is like that exactly there's more exactly. true cracks there but yep. you're the, protecting you still you're lucky yeah. if you'll put one jam in mm-hmm. it's it's but, in the u.s at least in colorado a, a good analogy is eldo is is a little bit like that as well a little bit like yeah, that so but that's still more, more crack climbing yeah. than <laughs> all right so you're not a crack climber you're climbing so, in europe yeah and then I've realized that this is a weakness and I've always looked up to Yosemite as this amazing place. Always wanted to climb El Capitan. Like it's Mm -hmm. always been a dream. Mm -hmm. And 
really wanted to learn to climb cracks. Right. I decided if I was going to go and learn to climb cracks, I might as well go to the the birthplace of crack climbing and go to the valley. Right. So on my way back from Europe one time in 2009, I spent a few weeks in the valley and, of course, didn't do too much. Like spent a little bit of time around just getting used to crack climbing, but the goal was to head up El Capitan. Mm-hmm. And so after a couple of weeks, I went up free rider. Didn't free the whole thing, but I led the whole thing mm-hmm. in three days. And that's where the journey started with like, with crack climbing and uh-huh. with LCAP. So you're there for, for just a few weeks and then you climbed the free rider? So I climbed the free rider. We only had three days before the storm of the century was rolling in, apparently. Oh, right. <laughs> um, my partner was also from New Zealand and didn't adjust to crack climbing as quickly as I did. Like mm-hmm. I snapped into it pretty quickly, mm-hmm. came reasonably naturally. So I led the whole thing. Well, basically if I fell off, I headed through the pitch just sure. to get to the top in sure. time. Yeah. Uh, and that was the first time I've been on a big wall. Uh-huh. First time I'd hauled. Right. Like it was just a huge learning experience. Sure. I was broken by the time I got to the top. Yeah, Totally. But I was also really disappointed not to have climbed the headwall of the Salathe. Like right. free rider traverses around it. Mm-hmm. You get to see it, but you don't go anywhere near it. And that was when that really got stuck in my mind. Like I was like, I got pretty determined to come back and climb it at that stage. Okay. So I came back the next year and with the intention of climbing the Salathe. Mm-hmm. I went round to like, I knew that I could climb the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. So I decided I was going to go to the top and just mm-hmm. work out the headwall or see sure. whether I could climb it at all to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, and spent the next month or whatever hanging on a mini track, learning how to climb a crack. Because I still hadn't done that much at that point. Sure. <laughs> so at this this is like, what, 2010? That was 2010. Yeah. So yeah. At, at this point, you're supporting yourself through sponsorship in terms got, of at least being there? I've got a bunch of sponsors. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting a lot of money through them. I've got some travel support. Right. But I was still working. So you're too. like dirt bagging out in, in the valley, like hardcore or what? By that point, I had friends in the valley, so mm-hmm. I was living on. I was living between a friend's place in Foresta and okay. the SAR site, search and rescue sure. um, down in the valley. Yeah, just putting it together the just, way people yep, do. Yeah, yep, crashing on people's floors, okay. making it like yeah, I was dirtbagging it totally. So, all right, so 2010 is that is how'd that season end? Did you do it? That season ended with me getting to the headwall mm-hmm. and then being rained off the headwall. Okay, um, a torrential. Rainstorm came over the top, mm-hmm. didn't see it coming. I think it was fourth day on the wall or fifth day on the wall, and I'd freed up to there. I was about to drop down and try the head wall. Mm-hmm. Um, everything got soaked. We managed to bail to the top, and it ended up being a five-day storm. Okay. Um, I think everyone left the captain. <laughs> and, yeah, that was the end of... 2010 season mm-hmm. 2011 i came back again and did the same thing made sure i was fit ready eventually found a partner to climb it with me and managed to put it all together right on and so you went from the bottom to the top yep awesome yep. so I actually ended up dropping in that time and leading the head wall on its own first just mm-hmm. to make sure i could sure absolutely just to really know i could do right. it um and then actually had quite a few Issues finding someone to climb it with me. Okay. Because I wanted to lead it all. Right. It's pretty hard to find someone to jog for five days. Really? 
That doesn't seem that. <laughs> and I ended up ended up finding someone who would do better than Jake. He actually followed and led all the crux pitches as well. Okay. Um, it was Sean Villanova. Okay. A really strong Belgium climber. Sure. Um, big wall legend. Mm-hmm. So when you when that film was made, had you done it already, or was that in the middle of it all? That's when I'd done it. I okay. was actually. It was the day before I was scheduled to fly out of the okay. country. Okay. And basically, Andy was a friend of a friend's, mm-hmm. and someone tipped him off that I just climbed it. Okay. And he was like, Yeah, I'm psyched to come and film it. Sure. So we made it happen right. in a day. Well, you and clearly. He did know, extremely right, well getting yeah. the footage. Yeah, from, well, and you like, clearly know what you're doing on it. So that's why I was kind of like, Where, at what point was it in the. I mean, obviously, if you hadn't climbed it already you were really close because yeah. no, in the video bit- you were like reaching and pulling and doing everything exactly the way it obviously needed to be done so it was probably about 10 days after I climbed okay it. cool because it the cool thing about that video i think that everybody i know commented on was because you had it so in hand like you made it look doable you made it look like as a crack climber i was like man you know yeah maybe, maybe i could go up there and check it out you know and reach through and she doesn't look any taller than I am, you know, it's like, so it was cool. It was a great video. I really enjoyed it. For me, the crux of it was doing it that smoothly mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the crux is right at the end. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so I had to have the whole thing wired mm-hmm. so I could climb it really smoothly. Mm-hmm. And it's a full 60 meter pitch. Yeah, yeah. It's totally. long. Yeah, I know yeah. all about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you fell off in the video and, and that actually was even better. Like it made it better for nice. sure. So yeah. I thought, yeah. did, I mean, it just was like all of a sudden you fell off and then that's when it was like, wow, it is really hard. <laughs> you know? so, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you know, you, you did that. And, um, you know, the sort of most recent press I've seen about you is this is ending this what sounds like a protracted battle with punks in the gym and, and Arapoles as well. And just to frame it before you get into punks in the gym was one of the first. I want to say one of the first 514s in the world. It was the first 514 in okay. the world. Wolfgang Gulich put it up. It was put up in 1985, right? 86, I think it was. Mid-80s in Mount Rapalis in Australia and was like so far beyond anything anybody was doing anywhere else in the world. Became one of the most famous routes of that decade, really. Still one of the most famous routes in the world. Yeah. And definitely from, like if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, Mm -hmm. it's the most famous route in the world. Right, okay. And that's why it was a big thing for me. Sure, sure. So tell me about like getting hooked into that and, and, and what the process was there. Well, it's like I mentioned before, Arapalos was where my first climbing trips were. It's one of the places that I really learned to climb. It's one of the mm-hmm. places where I learned to place trad. Yeah, first lessons were there and I spent quite a bit of time climbing there. And so I'd always walked past punks mm-hmm. and seen it and never really thought I could climb it. Sure. Um, just so far, so far ahead of where I was at that stage. Right. And I actually didn't go back to Arapalos for a long time and got a lot stronger, like when I was climbing in Europe and doing other stuff. Still never really thought I could climb it because all the crux moves are really long reaches. Okay. Um, and then at some point, I'm not quite sure when it was. must have been 2010, I went back mm-hmm. and went to Arapalos with the intention of trying that route. Mm-hmm. And that's where that epic battle started. Right. Um, <laughs> I eventually did find a sequence that would work for me. Mm-hmm different to the original one most people like they do the first boulder problem Mm -hmm. and then go out left get a almost a no hands rest Mm -hmm. and then launch into another boulder problem which takes you through to like a sort of seven move boulder problem 
the only way I could work out that was really going to work for me was going straight through. So I basically turned it into more of an endurance route than, mm-hmm. well, power endurance route, still kind of short. Well, and to explain it too, it's it's on a type of rock, even for Arapiles, that, you know, it, it's in between what we would call holds is pretty smooth usually. So to find it like a different sequence is kind of impressive. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very it's, smooth, rounded type of rock with, with like just small holds in between. Yeah, it's on this rounded rock. It's sandstone, but it's super metamorphosed, so it's almost like like it's marble smooth. Yeah, it's the hardest and rock it, I've ever climbed on, for sure. The route's about 25 meters long. It's just overhung. Like, mm-hmm. it's not super steep, but it is overhung. And most of the holds are side pulls. Right. Small, crimpy side pulls. It's super technical. And because the holds are side pulls and the rest of it's with smooth, sort of bulbous rock, you've always got these terrible smears to stand right, on. Right, right. And that makes, and a couple of, like, then you get some, just the occasional jib, mm-hmm. like little edge that you can stand on, and the occasional downpulling hold. Right. So let me ask you this. You're involved in this, this thing that at first you can't even do, and then you find this, this sequence that, that puts it in your head that you could possibly do it, but, but you, you don't end up doing it that season, because you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you had to go back to, to try it again like just in terms of what's going on in your head like how do you just i mean yeah, so it wasn't that there's, super there's dark way more to it than that like okay. it wasn't just once that i went back well, no no <laughs> I, okay but, uh, so yeah. i went so i went there for three weeks the right. first time mm-hmm. i got reasonably close that time but i didn't get super like i knew that i could do it by the end of that and so are you like you know this is what I'm here to do. Um, I like, was in super project rest, mode. Try, rest. And I didn't like, climb anything else. That's okay. all I was on. Right. I warmed up on it. Sure. I'd try it until I couldn't anymore. Mm-hmm. I'd rest until I could try it again. Were you fun to be around? Most of the time I probably was. Okay, good. Near the end of those trips, <laughs> like when the time frame was getting short, mm-hmm. I had my moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you I know, had my dummy spurts. Well, and I'm, <laughs> I threw I'm, my toys. <laughs> I project a little bit, never nothing like that. But you know, I find that sometimes I catch myself because I'm I'm like you, like you know, being outside, being in the mountains, and all that sort of stuff that go with climbing is is the essence of why I'm into it. But then I'm I sometimes like find myself so in my head about this little climb that I've, I've lost some of that part of it. You yeah. know what I mean? Punks definitely went from being like really fun mm-hmm. to almost a job almost a chore that mm-hmm. i just wanted to get done sure i learned a huge amount about just mental state and how mm-hmm. to deal with frustration because i got super frustrated with it i came so close to it many times like yeah i did spend a long time trying it mm-hmm. getting really close having to leave again like just red pointing something that's really Hard for me, and a lot of it for me was also the mental thing of it being the super famous route mm-hmm. that no female had climbed. Um, there was a little bit of other external pressures that another female was trying it. We were climbing together, mm-hmm. just more stuff that I had to work through mentally, sure. right? And to go through this whole: well, do I really want to climb the route? Do I want to just be the first female to climb this route? Okay, right, right. And that like was something that I really had to work through. And questioning no, no, your motivation. I want to yeah. climb this route. Mm-hmm. I want to climb it because it's an amazing route, and 
has always been on my back doorstep. Sure. And I would regret it if I didn't go and climb that route. Right. Irrelevant of who, other, who else has climbed it ever. And that was a really important step for me to make. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there were definitely a lot of times when I questioned, like, even being there at all because it wasn't really fun anymore. Mm-hmm. So what? Yeah. What was there a breakthrough or did you just finally one day click into the right mental state? Last year was, a, was the first year that I've actually been a fully funded climber. Okay. Um, I'd just been taken on by Adidas before heading down there, and they actually got really, really keen on covering it and having okay. that as their sort of media flash of sure. me being with Adidas. Sure. Um, because Wolfgang Gulich was an Adidas athlete at the time when he climbed it. Okay. Um, one of their first climbers. Okay. So they got very keen on the idea of having mm-hmm. me climb it and being an Adidas athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was extra pressure. I bet. They didn't put any pressure on me, but I took it as extra sure, pressure. Sure. I suddenly had someone who was well, almost a, paying me to climb. A little bit unspoken. I yeah. mean, you know, maybe they didn't come out and say it. but It's how you take it. Yeah. And I take it seriously sure. anyway. So sure. whether that had a lot to do with me not climbing at that trap or not, I don't know. I didn't climb it. I was like, I really did want to go back and climb it, but I was also dreading going back there. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back. When I made the choice to go back in the fall, I wanted to make sure that I actually, that I would climb at that time and did everything in my power to make that happen. And that involved actually doing some training first. Okay. And that was where one of the reasons why I ended up here as well, because I ended up talking to people about that while I was at the Rock and Ice photo camp. That was a few months out from going down there. That's when I made the switch from going, well, I'm just going to go there and try it, mm-hmm. to go, no, I'm going to make sure I climb it. Okay. And part of that was training specifically for it. And that's what brought me here for the first time. September, start of September, and I spent not long, but like three or four weeks just training specifically for that, and I felt significantly stronger when I did that. Part of that was to do with training. Part of that was to do with just having done a huge amount of climbing that year. Right. Um, but I cut out like I was going to spend the month in Yosemite. That's what I really wanted to do. Right. I made the choice to go and train instead. Okay. Spent a week in the valley instead. Okay. That's when I did the speed, the no speed record. All right. That was um, another yeah. thing. Yeah. We yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you did the speed record, came back, trained. No, I trained, took a week. Oh, afterwards. Out to do the speed record. Okay. Because that was the time when my friend Chantal had time. Mm-hmm. And so I met her in the valley for a week. We did that in the link up mm-hmm. to half time. I spent a week up at Smith Rocks and then went down to... Arapiles. Okay. And after a couple of weeks of just climbing there and trying the project, and also made a point of doing some other stuff as well that time, like oh, right not on. focusing purely on that, like just kind of mental state. Right. Yeah, it worked, basically. And that got me inspired to come back and put some more time some into more training, training to see what I can do with All it. All right, well, that's, that's actually <laughs> how we should wrap this up then. So... You accomplish your goal there. You come back here to start training. Well, I noticed the effects of it okay. in a very short time mm-hmm. and made me realize that I do respond to it. Mm-hmm. And it's something, it's a side of climbing that I've never exp- really experimented with. Uh-huh. I've done the, the projecting thing. I've done the 
just being on the road and just climbing mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. thing. And I feel like my greatest gains are going to come from actually spending some time not really climbing and just training. Uh huh. How's how's that mentally for you? Tough. <laughs> well, at least it's cold outside, right? That's a kind of it's a double edged sword. It's like it's cold outside and I don't like it, but right. and it is good because it's forcing me to go inside. Yeah. But I don't like it. Right, right, right. <laughs> and to say in saying that, I'm actually enjoying training. Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying it. I'm enjoying seeing progress. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the process, but it is tough and I'm missing being outside and I'm missing really just climbing. And that's what I, that is what I love about the sport is climbing outside. Well, maybe when this podcast goes out there, Grand Junction will become an international training destination. (laughs) Like it'll be a new economy here in Grand Junction. Maybe. Yeah. As people come in. So what, you know, you're good that they'd have to, would force them to get a new gym. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, just think about the guys in Sheffield and their cellars. Like, it has to be kind of crummy for it to work. It can't be state of the art. It's all about hard work and yeah. just bearing the pain and exactly. suffering down. And so, what do you? I mean, you're going to be here for a little bit training. Um, are you willing to let uh, us sort of see your cards in terms of what you're thinking about climbing in the in the future here? One of the main goals for training at the moment, and the thing I'm using for motivation is just do it. Okay. Smith Rocks. All right. Um, another one of those historic routes that sure. I tend to gravitate towards. Right on. <laughs> um, I had a little play on it mm-hmm. when I passed through Smith Rocks end of last year. Mm-hmm. It's something I'd like to go back to, sure. see whether I can climb it. Sure. Other than that, definitely spend some time in the valley in fall. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe in spring, but more likely in fall. Okay. Basically play on the nose is mm-hmm. the, the big things. I want to try and do it free. And mm-hmm. potentially have another go at the speed records. We we talked a little bit. We were talking about, or you, you brought up doing, you know, first female sense in New Zealand, and and it just was kind of curious to me when I started looking back at the history of punks in the gym. How long has it been? Thirty years almost? No, twenty-seven years. Twenty-seven years. Yeah. Yep. So when you were talking about the mental block of going out there and being this this woman that's going to climb on this thing that's reachy, but then I think when you brought up the nose, it's like there's this this gap here as well on the, on the nose, like totally. of everybody, totally. not just, you yep. know, it's an amazing thing that, that Lynn got that done when yeah. she did. Yeah. Lynn's always been an inspiration. She's- Certainly. I mean, it's the same. That's kind of what I'm saying. It's like, you must sort of use that same energy of like, I can do this regardless of what is supposed to happen, you know, or what is supposed to be the sequence of how a route gets done. I definitely take that approach. Like uh-huh. if I see something that I want to do, I'll just, it's what I did with the Salafé. Right. Like, I didn't do a whole heap of crack climbing first and mm-hmm. then go to it when I was ready to do right. it. I went, no, I want to do that. I'm going to learn. I'm going to just get myself on it and try. Awesome. Um, that don't know whether it's the best way to go about things, but mm-hmm. it definitely seems to be the way that I like to throw myself in the deep end and just learn because you have to. Right. Um, a friend of mine did, described me as being almost childish in that sense of just not going well this is what's expected and that's the way it should be and looking at other people like do as a way of knowing what you can do Mm -hmm. more going no i want to do that i'm gonna do that sure make it happen (laughs) right yeah i guess that's i don't know it's got me where i've got to i think right is that sort of approach awesome 
Well, listen, let's wrap this up. We, we've, uh, we've gotten a great interview here. I really, again, appreciate you sitting down with me. And um, Rob went to bed, but I thank him for letting us use his kitchen table to get this interview done. And for letting me live here at the moment. <laughs> yeah, So and, and teaching you how to train. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I wish you all the luck. And thanks. All right, folks, another one in the bag. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to mine for sitting down. I'll admit I was a little bit intimidated at first, but turned out she's very sweet, very soulful, and very generous to give us just a little bit of her time. So remember that you can always email me at chris at anormalcast.com. Any questions, any concerns, stories you want to tell me, you just want to chat, send me an email with your address. I'll send you some stickers, whatever you need. That's it for today. Keep listening, tell your friends, and don't forget to check your knot. Let me finish. I'm a person. Brett's a person. Yeah. You're a person. That person over there is a person. All and each person deserves to be treated like a person. It's a great speech. Too bad New Zealanders are a bunch of cocky a-holes descended from criminals and retarded monkeys. Are you thinking of Australians? Yeah, that's Australians. That's Australians. No, 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 New Zealanders. They throw another shrimp on the barbie, ride around in your kangaroos all day. No, 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 no that's no, Australians. That's... You're thinking of Australians. That's not us. I've totally confused you with Australians. I, I feel terrible. Oh just... no! We're... Oh no! Your it... accents—they're just kind of similar. Our accents are completely different. They're like, "Where's the car?" And we're like, "Where's the car?" <laughs> <laughs>